Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Begi Temba Makubu, an award-winning journalist from Eswatini. Enjoy this thought-provoking conversation. Begitemba Makubu, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. So, Beggy, yeah. for, 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 I mean, for as long as I can remember, um, Eswatini and Amaswati were considered uh, docile like Zimbabweans. Uh, they, they took any um, uh, repression from, from the authorities, you know, or in Zimbabwe from Robert Mugabe and from, from the king. But like you're saying, you know, 2021, Peggy, to 2022, though we've seen uh, quite a restive uh, population in Eswatini. Talk to us, Peggy, what's happened? What's changed the es uh, Amaswati to be as, as, as um, outspoken, um, they're standing up? What, what is it that has caused them to be so restive? Well, my analysis has been that, um, you know, our structure as a country, remember, we are one tribe, uh, the Swati people. Uh, we understand, we share values, we share just about everything. And uh, one of the most important things, I suppose, is that we all are answerable to the king. But over time, and, uh, you know, I've written about this many times, is that the king, in my view, has over time moved away from the people. Um, at, at a traditional level, in, in terms of who we are, you know, we have a saying that uh, so the king is the people, the people are the king. Uh, they, we are all one thing. But uh, I've seen him move away from separate and distinct from us. What does that mean? That means that if we are living in hard economic times, the king cannot be seen to be living a good life. He must suffer with us. Um, because in our tradition and culture, when we have problems, he must sort our problems and we come first before him. Um, he, 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 he sort of lost that plot. So, Peggy, what, what is causing that distance between the king and the people in your analysis? Well, it's, it, like I said, in, in, in 2009, you know, he, he bought those 13 Rolls Royces, which was a huge shock for everyone. Um, you know, what has happened over the years? Hold on, Peggy. 13 Rolls Royce. Yes, Phantoms, I think. 13 of them. Yeah, for him, the Queen Mother and his wives. Wow. 
That's huge. Yeah. It was, it, like I say, I wrote an article in response to that, and I said uh, the king has abdicated, you know, his position as a monarch because it cannot be that in such difficult, uh, you know, economic times where particularly public servants and our government is the biggest employer in the country, they had not been getting salary increases, I think, for three years up to then. Uh, and they'd been asked to sacrifice because the country was going through economic difficulties. For him to then come up with these cars was, uh, was, showed the disconnect that he was no longer sensitive. And like I said, you know, in our culture, he is, we are one with him. Um, so he was defying everything about being a Swazi monarch. And um, unfortunately, his children too were not helping. Uh, you know, with the advent of social media, they were posting pictures of the glitzy lifestyles that they, they live, uh, posting uh, expensive watches and expensive li lifestyle in a sea of poverty. So that, that, that was his undoing um, hmm. in the main for me. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long discussion that in itself as an analysis. Mm. When you look at how, where, where the country comes from and the change in politics and how, how we got to a point where there was a disconnect. Mm. So the, the um, pro-democracy uh, protests, 2021 up to this year, essentially there is a message there that the people have had enough with the monarch. Um, and I get a sense that this is partly because 60% of Eswatini's uh, population is below 29 years of age. Am I right in my assessment of uh, what's happening? Well, you know, up to July, June last year, I would have said maybe not, maybe not uh, tired of the monarchy, maybe tired of how he was, his, he was running the country. But, um, you know, since then, he has not done anything to re-engage the people and remind us, everybody, and we remind him, too, that we, what we expect from him and what he should expect from us. And, and I'm getting worried that it, it is now bringing the very question of the monarchy as an institution into question. Because what we are seeing now is he simply ignored us, you know. Um, and in fact, uh, the latest issue of the magazine I work for, uh, our front cover say, asked the question, has the king turned his back on us? You mm. know, um, because this is a time when he should be showing leadership of a true king, uh, speaking to us with the wisdom that reminds us of who we are and that calms us down. Uh, mm. But it's not happening, you know. So, so we're like a runaway train. So I get the sense, uh, Beggy, that the king has not ignored you. The king has, uh, has responded in a heavy-handed manner to the protests. Um, in a certain instance, violent uh, response to 
protests about people that are asking for democracy. Is my information right? Well, that's what happened last year in July. There was a heavy-handed response. People died. Uh, you know, the army moved in. Uh, people were maimed. People died. That is true. Uh, but I wouldn't say the last year that is as much as what happened last year. There has been some restraint. Remember, this is a problematic for us uh, as a small country. There's only 1.2 million of us. If somebody, even if a soldier takes a gun and shoots someone, it might well be that over the weekend he might hear from his mother that she's going to bury this person because they are related to him. So it's not an easy thing to do for us to murder each other as. But yes, there was that on orders, and the only person who gives such an order would be the king. Uh, there's nothing like rogue elements uh, from the security forces. He has to give that order. So it happened, but it stopped because mm. I, you know, it, you just it's unsustainable. Mm. So as we're the, talking right, as we're talking right now, Beggy, you are you are home. You have not gone to work because there is a protest that was called. You know, people should stay away. Well, how would you characterize the situation? Is this a stalemate? Is it a standoff? What's your sense of what's happening? Yeah, I'd say it's a standoff. You, you know the the. The, the, what I've, you know, listening to people and, and looking around, uh, look, I think all sides, and I would argue that even the king too, realizes that something needs to be done to change the direction of the country. The circumstances are, in which we live are not workable for him and for ordinary citizens. But there's there's also those people, there are also those people who... One non-political, you know, um, professionals and stuff like that. They also will tell you that things are not well in this country. Something needs to be done. Uh, but they are generally looking to the king to give directions. There's still that space. And then, of course, then you have the extreme elements, the more radical forces who are saying, well, he's not going to do anything. He must go. But... For me, as, a, as, as someone from this country, the question of he must go raises another question we haven't even begun to discuss, which I think would be even more problematic for us. So to say he must go is, to me, a very extreme... Uh, he, look, he, he's not been running this country properly, but to remove him raises the question, what do you replace him with? And I think that question is very, very difficult to answer. Mm. But three yeah. times, three times, Beg, you've said yourself, something needs to be done. What is that something? What does that something look like? Something needs to be done. Um, what, does, what, does that, what does that something look like? For me, the king needs to call us and have a conversation with the Maswati as it has always been done from the beginning of time. He, he has reneged on his responsibility as a king to have a conversation, not to talk to us and talk down to us, not to have a conversation to ask what exactly do we want, to, to tell us what his views are, to essentially to show that he cares, that to go back to what brings us together, 
that symbiosis. He, he, it's his. Mm. Unfortunately, that's his job, and no one else can do that work. Mm. No so one else let, can. Let me, let me, let me just go to what you've just said now, Beggy, which is very important. The king needs to have a conversation with uh, Amaswati to find out what it is that you want. What is it that the Amaswati people want? Like all human beings, Amaswati want a better economic life. Mm -hmm. Let us suppose these economic difficulties are, are impossible to solve now overnight. He needs to talk to us about that. But more than anything, he needs to show that he is suffering just as we are. He, he can't be living a first world life and tell us to take it easy, all will be well, while he is living a life that, def that defies all that. You know? So he needs to do a climb down. And come down. Let, let me let me just give you an example. I'm sure you've heard of the fact that meetings among Maswati are held at the Sibaya. Yeah. Yes. Well, one of the mistakes he has made uh, over the last few years, and I don't know why his advisors don't tell him that this is wrong. By tradition, when Maswati meet Sibayan, the king does not sit on a chair or on a throne. He sits on the grass with everyone to be at the same level with Emaswati. Mm. He humbles himself because Emaswati as a group, once they come together, they form the kingship that he is. But he sits on a chair now. <laughs> wow. That shows a disconnect. Nobody has said to him, you are losing your people, your, your majesty, by doing that. He, well, I mean, look, in a chiefdom, let me tell you, and, and I like to think it's an African thing. You know, I, I've noted um, when you're sitting under a tree, if you sit on a root, you know those trees with big roots? Yes, yes. You, you are not allowed to sit on it because mm. you are raising yourself above the people. It's the same thing, except that here it's more sensitive. And when he puts a chair, and, and when he puts a uh, when he brings a chair to the spy, something that is unknown in African culture, there's no chair in African culture in a cattle crop. Mm. It's sending a bad message, mm. and and so he needs to he needs to humble himself to us and mm. talk to a Maswat. Beg mm. uh, it 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 does appear like there's a dis there's a disconnect between the institution of the monarchy and the modernization of uh, the society in which you live in. How do these th two things live together uh, in an equilibrium, in an environment which is modernizing? If you're going to sit down with the king, Esbayen, uh, and have a conversation with the king, I suspect you'd be asking the king to to sit down on the floor with you, but to let go some of the powers that he has, the privileges that he has. How realistic is that? Well, well, it's it's very real, and I'll tell you why. In 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 the comments he's made uh, about the problems in the country, he has invoked tradition and custom 
as the solution to our problems. He is the one who has done that. So we all we have to do is agree that let's use tradition. So sitting on the ground, sitting on the ground, um, on the grass, on the on the countdown, yeah, is not belittling of him because it's it's the definition of who we are. Mm. It might shock you as an outsider, but to us, it, well, we will tell you that this is our king. He is sitting with us, and we respect him for bringing himself to our level to have a conversation, uh, a, a frank conversation. Um, so no, it, 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 to us, it's not, it, it's, not a, it's not a concept that doesn't make sense. What, does make, what doesn't make sense is sitting on a chair. Yeah, yeah. But what my point is, clearly the king, this doesn't make sense to him anymore. He doesn't want to sit on the floor with you guys. He is he's not one of you. Then he'll lose his people. Which he has done. Yeah, he will lose his people. That's the consequence. And he, he was particularly, and I've seen them together. Their relationship with Mugabe was something else. Uh, so anybody who is not as tough and as Mugabe, I doubt he'll listen to. In fact, I know he doesn't trust many of the leaders uh, or think much of them. Uh, I can tell you now, and it might sound weird, but I would say you'd have to raise Mugabe from the grave to come and tell him what to do. Imagine getting free access to the Newsday, the Standard, the Zimbabwe Independent, and the Weekly Digest for a full month. Well, you can, and all you need to do is download the Newsday e-reader app on Google Play Store or scan the Newsday QR code in any of the AMH print publications and start enjoying the quality content. Paper. Let's go to you, you. You've touched on that the economic situation is tough. Describe to us what the economic situation has been over the past two or so years. What has made people uh, so militant? What's happened? Well, it, it, it goes back to the 2008 problems, the world economic problems. Um, remember that we are part of the SACO, the Southern African Customs Union. Yeah. Um, I know Zimbabwe is not, but we are. And we have, we have suffered a lot. In t- that, that, the, the revenue that came from that accounted for just over 60% of the government's budget per year. And uh, over the years, it has, we've lost huge amounts of money. There's been less and less and less. Um, and that has put pressure on, on, on government. What then government has done is they have uh, tightened the screws on tax collection, um, particularly on businesses, to try and make up for it. Um, but more than anything, uh, businesses and government have, have, have used that as an excuse not to pay salary increases that are decent to keep people happy. Because the story was things are tough. But you know, during corruption is a big problem. It's a big factor mm. here. Mm. Uh, mm. Because then you start hearing people who work in the public service say, 
why is it? I remember talking to one accountant and he said, you know, I don't believe that Switzerland has got problems. Swatin has got financial problems because of the money we see moving through our computers when we are instructed to pay so and so, you know, uh, because corruption means somebody who gets a tender from government will be given priority uh, to be paid ahead of other people just as deserving. Uh, when the Minister of Finance who came in now in 2018, when he came into office, he found many, many companies that had not been paid for over two years hmm. uh, for services. And, uh, you know, so businesses were, were in trouble. Uh, so you have people who are not getting paid for services rendered, public servants who are not getting salary increases, the public sector also, you know, crying, and, and an economy that's just in trouble. But in the middle of all that, boom, that in Rolls Royces. You see, that, mm. that doesn't work. Mm. Um, it somebody just didn't think clearly what was what was going on. Mm. Peggy, we we've seen the EFF um, put up a blockade at the border. Uh, we've had uh, talk about uh, sanctions from South Africa, which 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 is uh, a big thing to talk about, particularly given Saku that you've spoken about. How realistic one uh, is the prospect of sanctions, and is that desirable? And secondly. Um, what has been the effect of uh, the EFF uh, blockade? Well, the EFF, obviously, you know, like with any situation, as we have uh, seen today, uh, it slows down the economy, businesses it slowed down, uh, money is lost. So that's a problem. But I think on the question of sanctions, I'd really be interested to see how real that is. Um, look, if, if South Africa were to shut the doors on us, they would see what they are seeing from Zimbabwe. We'd simply mm. flood into that country. Mm. And I don't think they need 1.2 million people, you know. Uh, so it would be suicidal for them to mm. do that. Because what else are we going to do? Um, uh, so I don't know if that is going to happen simply because it wouldn't make sense. Even It wouldn't be in South Africa's interest to do anything to us right now. Mm. And do you think there's any role for the region? What should SADAC be doing, uh, if anything at all? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a very tough one um, because attempts have been made. And I do know from what I understand that, understand this, you know, SADAC has been around for a long time. Um, and I remember thinking when Mugabe and uh, is it Dos Santos from Angola yeah. died, Muswati became the most senior member of the SADAC region. And he, he was particularly, and I've seen them together. Their relationship with Mugabe was something else. Uh, so anybody who is not as tough and as Mugabe, I doubt he'll listen to. In fact, I know he doesn't trust many of the leaders uh, or think much of them. Um, I can tell you now, and it might sound weird, but I would say you'd have to raise Mugabe from the grave to come and tell him what to do. Wow. Only because he would listen. He's the one guy he would listen to because wow. he respected him immensely. 
I, wow. I don't think the other leaders uh, would say anything that he would take too seriously. Hmm. You know? So, Beggy, so we would need to raise Robert Mugabe to make the king change. But the king, we can't do that. The yeah. king is not the king is not listening to Amaswati. What's going to happen, Beggy? It's it's a terrible standoff. He, he has if if like I said, if he doesn't listen to us, he will lose us. What does and that mean? Without us, what does that mean? What well, does that mean? What what does that mean? Um, you know, over time, I think that people will get more violent. Mm. You know. And uh, I think that um, even within the royal household itself, they might turn on him. Because remember, our royal family is a huge institution. And there are people there who are not saying anything now, who have an interest in the continuity of the royal family, without which they are nothing. Um, let me let me tell you a story without yes, sir, Peggy. Yes, please. Okay. In 1899, we had a king, his father. He was said to be a madman, smoked too much dope, and not okay. Sopuza's father. And when the Anglo Boer War started, uh, he wanted to join in because he, he saw himself as a warrior king. And then one day, he dropped dead. Hmm. Um, and it is said he was killed by his mother, hmm. the queen regent, the queen mother at the time. Now the question is, why would she kill him? Everything suggests that they saw that if he continued on the throne, hmm. the country would be swallowed by South Africa because. He wasn't thinking straight. He wasn't thinking. He wanted to do things that threatened the country's stabilities in white interests. So he had to go mm. to save the country. Peggy, so supposing the king dropped dead today, who would take over? Is that clear? That's why I'm saying to you, if we talk about removing Swati, it would create a new problem that is bigger than the one we have. Mm. Normally, it would be one of his children, but we know some of his children and none of them fit the bill. Oh, wow. Uh, so perhaps, you know, I've always suspected that maybe it's one of those genius things he has done during his reign. Uh, knowing history of how this country works. Make sure there's no one sitting there waiting to take over. Uh, because they can make arrangements for him because there's already a candidate waiting. Mm. Uh, I've, I've always suspected that he's the one who made it pos impossible that an, um, a candidate is ready to take over. Peggy, you have been outspoken for a very long time. And you have paid the price for being outspoken. Um, in 2014, uh, you were arrested um, for contempt of court, uh, and you stayed in prison for some time. And you had you had written something about the judges and the chief justice. Talk to us about 
what you've been through um, and and uh, what what that has meant to you? Well, you know, my, my problems with the authorities, uh, Swatini, start actually in 1999 when I was <clears throat> editor of uh, the Times, the, the Sunday edition of the Times, what we call the Sun, Times Sunday. Uh, the king took, I think, his 10th wife there, if I remember well. And I remember reading, it came out in the Monday edition. It was after the Red Dance. And um, I, it came out in the Monday edition. And I called the reporter who had written the story um, to say, hey, you know, who's this lady who's just been taken? Because the king, I think, had for two years not taken anyone. So, uh, you know, it sort of got my curiosity. Who's this woman? And uh, the reporter said to me, actually, we didn't write, I, we, I didn't write that part in the, in the newspaper because I left it for you. Um, I, have, I know who she is and where she comes from, uh, but I didn't think they would uh, publish it in the daily paper. And he wanted his, he had said he had left it for me. And uh, it was quite a sensational. She had been a... Uh, one of those unruly girls at school who had back school and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, I published in the Times, um, uh, the, the Sunday edition, that the, the new Ingosigati is a high school dropout. And uh, that caused a sensation. Funny, you know, when you think about that time and you look at where we are now, it's, it's amazing how this country has changed because a lot of people condemned me for that. Um, they said I was disrespect. And I'm, I'm talking here, not people in power, I'm talking ordinary people. People you meet in a bar over a beer, they tell you that you are not a good Swazi. How can you um, write that about one of the king's wives, stuff like that? They, they were really offended by me. You know, I remember thinking, you know, I'd read it somewhere that you know when you walk into a when you walk into a party and somebody everybody starts looking at their feet because they don't want to greet you. That that was my experience at the time. <laughs> right, but um, things have changed now. Yeah, dramatically. So I was arrested then uh, because what happened was um, they couldn't find a a, a proper law that I could be charged with until some the, the director of public prosecutions at the time discovered that there was a law from 1912 called criminal defamation. It had never been used in the country. And uh, I was charged with that. Uh, but I, I spent one night in prison in a, in a police jail cell and uh, was released on bail the next day. But I've got to say this to you. In, in all my, you know, on the, on the instances where I've been arrested for such things, the, the police have been, the arresting officers have been very, very nice to me. Um, they would say, no, Makubu, we know we're not going to do anything. Let's just go in. Let's do this. We have to do this. And they, they'll take, they take me out of the cell very early in the morning uh, and be like, we know it's not nice there. So come and sit with us in the office. Uh, we need to go to court. But I, I was arrested the first time then, but I never stood trial in that case. Mm. Um, 
because the charges the, were the charges were dropped, eh? Yeah, they were. They, they mm. were dropped because the DPP just wouldn't show up in court to prosecute the case until it was struck off the roll and you know forgotten. Um, mm. And I remember at the time while I was out on bail, um, I needed to go to South Africa, and I went to the arresting officer. And I told him, I said, I need to go to Joburg. I need my passport back. He said, oh, okay, come back in a couple of days. I came back to see him. He just gave it to me and said, go, I know you'll come back. So I broke your yeah. stride there. I broke your stride there, um, Beg. You were talking about your second arrest. Relate to us uh, why you were arrested the second time. Uh, the second time, we what happened was... Um, I think in 2009, uh, the king appointed a chief justice, uh, Michael Ramadibedi, from the suit. Uh, Ramadibedi was, was a very highly respected judge. Um, he sat on the, he, he had come here to sit on the Court of Appeal. He also sat on the Court of Appeal, I think, in Botswana, in the Seychelles. And within the legal fraternity in the region, uh, one of the, you know, highly respected guys. So th there was actually, from I, I remember then, um, a feeling that we were lucky that he accepted the, uh, the position here uh, because we had sort of gotten a jewel of Southern Africa. But mm. there's a problem that I've seen with foreigners when they come to Eswati. <laughs> no, seriously. You see, the king is an absolute monarch. So when he says Trevor can go and drive that car, no one questions that. That's how it has been. And, and so what, what that tends to do is people tend to ignore the rules and because they are in the king's good favor. Because all you need is his word. Mm. It doesn't matter that his word is ill-informed. It's mm. his word. Mm. Now, with people who come from outside the country, I my view is that it's a culture shock, and and it's beautiful, and 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 it 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 it, it poisons the mind, uh, because you become untouchable, and this is what happened to Ramadibedi. He he found himself able to do things he would never do anywhere else, and and it got to his head, and he started abusing the law. And uh, I mean, what I had written several articles before uh, complaining that, um, you know, what is happening in the judiciary is, is not right. They are issuing judgments that favor a certain line of thinking. For instance, I think in 2010 or 2011, government won every appeal it had on the, in, the, in the Supreme Court here. And they even went as far as to issue invitations, and I got one, uh, where there was going to be a dinner to celebrate that. I think somebody smart somewhere advised Ramadibedi that you don't do that because the fact that government wins everything is a misnomer in itself. Mm. You know? But here he was making government and the king happy by, by loading uh, the judicial system in government's fail favor without taking cognizance that the people who have lost are unhappy. Mm. So essentially, he was dividing, he was creating division between the king and the people.
So you were you were you then criticized that, and uh, that was deemed to be contempt of court. Is that what happened in twenty fourteen? Well, well, no. There was another incident where what had happened was government had issued a directive uh, as part of uh, cost cutting measures following the economic problems where everyone driving a government vehicle had to have a permit from the head of that ministry. And on a Saturday, one fateful Saturday, one judge uh, with a driver was 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 stopped by government vehicle examiners. Uh, And the driver of the vehicle was asked if he had a permit, and it didn't. And so the government guys tried to confiscate the car. And in doing so, rendered, um, you know, immobile the judge who was being ferried around. Ramaribedi got mad and had that guy arrested. Hmm. I then wrote an article to say, how do you arrest someone for doing his job? Um, And then he just sort of decided to hold me into. And I, you know, I said he was abusing his power. And I think... I think the sentiment, you know, my belief is that even at the time, there was a lot of, uh, you know, discomfort with me and my writing. So I think he tried to be the hero by saying, I will deal with this Makubu guy if you guys don't do it. Um, And he he had me arrested and uh, we were tried by a judge who he had appointed a month earlier. And who, even during the trial, you could see that this guy didn't know what he was doing because he was always adjourning. And I think he was always going to consult um, Ramodibed on what to do with whatever issues we raised. <laughs> and I, I think the publicity, particularly internationally, of my arrest was his undoing um, because the government couldn't explain it rationally what was going on with me. Yeah. Mm. So he, what happened? Did he get did, did he get fired or something? Did, did he resign? Well, he. Let me tell you what happened. I got arrested, was tried, was sentenced to two years in prison, but because he had become cocky, and because I always tell people, because Emma Swati too are very conniving people. <laughs> You know, we, we don't talk much. And, and that's why the world thinks we're docile. But we can walk around you and destroy you without you knowing. Mm. He then, he, he had a tax problem as an expatriate. You know those contracts that you get so much money at the end of your contract? Yeah. He tried to cheat government on that. Yeah. And they went to report him to the king that, Your Majesty, this man is now a thug. Hmm. Now, it is said that there are two things you don't do to King Mswati. Don't mess with him with money. Don't mess with his wives. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody does. So they then made a case against him and charged him uh, for, for, for that corruption. And when they wanted to arrest him, he locked himself in his house for a month. Uh, he wouldn't let anyone in. He was, he was under house arrest, if you like. Everybody tried to beg him to come out. He wouldn't come out. And I'm made to understand that it's the Lesotho government that then intervened 
and said, look, this is our child. Bring him to us. You know, uh, this is embarrassing. And the deal was struck that, okay, uh, he must leave the country immediately. Uh, and that's what happened. Um, so so he, he was, he, he thought, he reached a point where he thought he could do anything. Wow. Now, and and this, this is a man, this is a man, beg by your own words, jewel of the region. That is why I'm saying, uh, and he's not the only foreigner in this country who has behaved this way once he gets close to the king. Mm, mm. He, the king's power is such that when it's new to you, it will drive you crazy. It drives us crazy too, mm. among ourselves. It, it, it's, it's amazing the things you can do based on your being close to the king. Uh, we had uh, the DPP who charged me with, uh, no, it wasn't him. Uh, uh, it was before him. Had, he was from Ghana. He, he once posted in public, he said, I drink wine with the king. And uh, Maswati were, were, were offended by that. And he left the country in a hurry because they wanted to arrest him. You know, uh, because so you, 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 let's go to you. you. Did you spend two years in prison then? Yeah, I spent two months short of a full two years. Wow. What was that like, Peggy? Well, what an experience. Um, mm. Talk uh, to me about the experience. experience. Um, look, I, I, was, I, was, I was living in a... It wasn't the maximum security jail, but I found myself... Um, when I first arrived there, um, I was put in a high-security cell door. Um, I was charged with contempt, and even the guys, and these are young men, uh, many of them, almost all of them, young enough to be my sons, uh, who are there for, in the, maximum, in the security cell I was in, I was dealing with guys who were doing murder, robbery, armed robbery, rape, you know, uh, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, one of the things you have a lot in jail is time. Time is you can never run out of time. So I listen to many stories of why they do that whole things, essentially confessions, fascinating stories of why did you kill that person? You know, what was going on in your mind? I, I listened to it. So that to me, in a way, I sort of said to myself, I'm experiencing something that many people never see. There's something that is good that has to come out of this. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, they are, they are, you know, one of the, you know, being in prison is not really about being locked in a room. It's, it's a mindset thing. Um, you are sitting there now. You are okay because you can stand up and walk out. But let me tell you, if somebody said you are not leaving this room, that place would suddenly <laughs> <It> changes. <laughs> yeah, suddenly would become a hostile. So that, that's problematic. So I learned quickly that in order to survive the place, I must not deny and be in denial of where, I'm, where I am. Uh, and that I have to go the whole, you know, um, take, take it as it is. Um, so it was interesting in that way. And then you've got the waters and, and they have problems. And some of them are hostile towards me. What was interesting was that when Ramodibet is 
problems began to unravel and everybody began to see him for what he was. Um, you know, the senior warders at the, at the jail, I think if they had had the power, they would have released me there and then. Because, mm. you know, they would make comments to say, we thought you were the one who was wrong. And yet you were the only one who could see what we had in our hands. This man is worse than anything we ever see. Um, so we went to, fortunately, I had an appeal going. And uh, I went to the court of appeal. And something funny happened at the court. So, you know, I'm the one who's appealing. So normally your lawyer will be the one who stand up to make submissions before the judges to lay the case for why you're appealing and all that stuff. But in this case, what happened was the DPP, who had prosecuted me, the director of public prosecutions, asked for the court's indulgence to address the court before my lawyer did. And it sort of caused the confusion among the judges. They said, no, but that's irregular. It's the appellant who starts first. He said, no, I know that, but I just need you to listen to me for five minutes and then they'll continue. And the judges said, okay, what do you want to say? And he said, a mistake occurred here. Wow. Never prosecuted uh, these people because there was me and Tulan Marcel. Uh, this whole thing was, should never have happened. We have no objection to anything, to having them released. And uh, whatever they might submit, we have no response. And um, so my lawyer stood up and said, you know, it was a lady from South Africa. She said, so what do we do now? And uh, I remember calling, um, you know, the assistant to that lawyer. I was sitting in the accused box and I said to him, tell him, tell her to ask the court to release us now, you know, um, because we still had some time left before the, our sentences were over. Um, and uh, she then submitted that in that case, then uh, we believe that these people should be released because the, the, the prosecution has admitted that they shouldn't have been there in the first place. So they let us out. Uh, they issued a, an order that we should go. And that's how we left. What did that make you feel? What I mean, so you've served 22 months in prison and the prosecutor comes and says you should not have been there in the first instance. What did that make you feel like? I was happy. I, I was happy that I was a vindicator, um, that I had done nothing wrong and that I had caught this man at a time when everybody thought I was wrong about him. Um, so I was happy that I was vindicated. I, I, I got to say that uh, my anger about being there was, look, I've got to sue these people, you know. But more than anything, at, at, at a starting point, you know, the vindication that I wasn't, I think it felt, I, I would say it felt better than finishing my sentence. Because mm. here was the DPP making a public statement uh, saying we made a mistake, you know. Uh, and um, I thought that was awesome. I thought that was great, you know, the admission itself, rather than the release from prison. Uh, mm. To me, that was most important. Yeah. Mm. Because, you know, you can, you can leave prison 
you can leave prison and everybody knows you've been in prison and some people will think you were guilty anyway. So, so you you were vindicated. From what I'm gathering, that you, for you the most important thing was that not the pain of spending twenty two months twenty two months in prison, but the fact that you'd been vindicated. Am I right? Yeah, it was important for me that I be vindicated. Um, yeah. Peggy, mm. how independent is the judiciary in Eswatini since the arrival of Ramadibedi to now? I would say nobody takes the judiciary seriously. Hmm. Um, even his successor, uh, the Chief Justice now, in fact, they did have a bit of an impeachment for Ramadibedi. I've forgotten to mention that. And chairing that impeachment process was the guy who's now Chief Justice. And even Ramadibedi, and it was common knowledge, but even Ramadibedi said that this man sitting here, try me now. I groomed him to be a judge. Um, so for us um, who understand these things, he, he, his behavior has been a continuation of uh, Ramadibedi's untidy handling of the This is now lacks, lacks the sophistication and intellectual capacity to even make it look decent. So to me, he's a hopeless case, you know. But again, what can you do? Because he's 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 appointed by the king. Wow! So the judiciary cannot be uh, trusted. It's not independent. What about the state of journalism? I mean, you've been in and out of of prison. Uh, I read some somewhere where you say that the 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 the, the Swazi government and the king don't take local journalists seriously at all. What's the state of journalism in right now? You know, with every profession, and, and we could go even to accounting, I discovered something recently that speaks to accounting and chartered accountants. I think, you know, society has become thoroughly corrupt. Uh, no. Journalism just as... Um, we we now hear a lot about journalism being on the take, uh, journalists being on the take. Um, what what happened was, particularly at the height of my problems, and even before, uh, we've got a small media sector in in, in Swatini, But what happened was, journalists became more timid. I think they. They they wrote they started writing articles to please the authorities as a means of uh, self preservation, uh, but at also at the same time, you, you you sort of saw the rise of these particularly young journalists who could sell stories. Hmm. In other yeah, uh, in other words, I've had many stories of of journalists going to source uh, the subjects of their articles and saying, give me so much money to make the story go away. Now, what that tends to do is you might live well and have some money, but who takes you seriously if everything you write? Once we see your name, Peggy Makumu, we know that, oh, that's Trevor's boy. Mm. Because mm. we know. And, and unfortunately, people tend to talk if you mm. give me a thousand bucks now, 
Mm. Uh, not to write about you. You are going to tell someone somewhere. Yeah. You know? And 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 these things happen. So we we've lost we've lost respect because of that. Um, we've lost respect because you know I was I was, I was at the archives uh, last year, early last year before the strike, and I was looking for some information, and I was looking at the newspapers from the nineties, and I noted that. We were writing more robustly then than we do now. And the question is why, why we now have a constitution, but we were more free then. We could write things that I think today would be difficult to write. Uh, one was because we, perhaps it has to do with, we were not, we, we, we saw ourselves as ideological, you know, as opposed to writing what somebody says we should write or should not write. Um, we enjoyed the game for what it was. And, and we saw ourselves as the intellectuals of the day, I guess. Uh, today, money seems to have taken over the, the beauty of what journalism is. Uh, people want we don't debate ideas anymore. Um, and uh, we, we want to be paid uh, to write an article regardless of what we believe in. And, and I pride myself in that I still hold on to the old values. Um, I, I remember I was called by someone in uh, mid-2018 and he, he asked me to write an article uh, because there was a problem with who was going to be prime minister and how he, you know, people give you ideas on articles. Or what yeah. and, 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 I, and I simply said to him, I don't agree with this mindset, but this guy, his position in society is such that I could have said to him, well, make it worth my while. You know, <laughs> I'll write it for you. you know? Yeah. Uh, but I just rejected it purely because I didn't believe in what he was saying. And I told him as much that I don't agree with you. You know, uh, that mindset doesn't gel with how I see things. Uh, but I'm sure he was surprised at that uh, because he he's also known to be the kind of guy who looks after journalists financially. We, we now hear a lot about journalism being on the take, uh, journalists being on the take. Um, what, what happened was, particularly at the height of my problems and even before, uh, we've got a small media sector in, in, in Eswatini, but what happened was journalists became more timid, I think. They, 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 wrote, they started writing articles to please the authorities as a means of uh, self-preservation. So, uh, Beggy, you started off as a sports reporter. Uh, you rose. You are now uh, editor and publisher of uh, The Nation. When you look back at your career and what you've been through, 
Do you have any regrets at all? Um, no. Um, actually, it's been quite fulfilling um, what I've done uh, over the years. And uh, I'm proud to say that to this day, I, I try as much as possible to, to remain true uh, to, to the profession. Uh, for instance, let me give you an example. When I came out of jail, um, my, my profile among the general readership was quite, was raised. People just were found it incredible I had uh, survived this and had been vindicated. So much, I, 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 I sort of got the impression that, you know, the way people are, if I, if I wrote nonsense, they would believe me. Um, uh, such was how I saw my credibility. But I said to myself, I will never lie to the public and manipulate issues simply because I know if I write something, you know, believe it and push agendas um, because that's not what journalism is about. And besides, I, I, I have this view that people might look at you and see you for what you are, but if you are not honest, eventually they'll catch up and then you lose everything you've done. So I've always tried to be as honest as I can. I mean, what I've said to you now, uh, it's something which is, I would justify it, you know, and say, within my thinking, this is how I see things. Uh, and I think that's important. And I think doing that has kept me going. Most, most people I started in journalism with uh, are no longer there. Um, and we are now in a situation, I mean, the magazine I, I, I work for is small, but uh, it commands more respect than the Times, which is the biggest um, newspaper in the country, simply because nobody associates me with any faction in what I write. And definitely nobody says, no, I paid Peggy for that. Um, so, so I, I, I've, I've been through the experiences I have. Perhaps with arrests, um, and I know that you know you identify with what I'm going to say. One of the warders who was the chaplain at the prison. You know, we were having a chat while I was there, and he said to me, "You know, Makobo, God works in mysterious ways. Um, perhaps in His plans for you, you have to." By go past this place so that I person after the experience. And he was saying, you know, uh, how else do you explain this nonsense that happened? So he said, just leave it to God. He made sure you go through this because he has other plans for you. So, yeah. There's a reason to why. There's a reason. There's a reason why we go through the things that we go through. Um, but you have been recognized, Peggy, um, CNN Journalist of the Year, um, CNN and Multi-Choice Journalist of the Year. What, does th what do those awards mean to you? Well, you know, the CNN, it was uh, for press freedom. Uh, when my wife came to tell me about it, I was in prison. Um, I, it threw me off. It was one of the biggest highlights of my time there because... I had been aware of the CNN Multi-Choice Award. I thought they were awesome. I, you know, I, I, to be honest, I'd always looked at it and said, I wonder how I can fit in there, you know, uh, Africa being such a big continent with 
countries that have got real problems and they have journalism, you know, journalists are challenged to do things that I could do. So for me, that was extremely important. Um, I couldn't go there on the day because I was in prison. Uh, but, you know, I still have the award now and I treasure it and I keep it. I was saying, uh, I, all Amaswati should forgive me for asking this question, but uh, um, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who might feel the way I feel. Why do you still have something like the reed dance? What is its significance culturally? <laughs> Um, my sense is that the reed dance objectifies women, um, but I, I'm not Swati, so I, I, you know, I'm completely maybe out of uh, out of my depth here. But walk us through why that is important. Well, you know, um, first of all, you've got to remember, like I said, we are we are one people, and. Um, for me, and, and I'll, I'll take it from a narrow and a broader angle, this, this question. At a narrow angle, we, we need something to identify with as a people that is separate and distinct from others. You know, uh, and when I say others, I'm talking about the Zulu, the Ndebele, and the, you know, the pe people who are almost the same with but we say we are a Maswat because this is what we do. Things like the Rit Dance are as old as we've had kings. They, the Rit Dance by its nature is a ceremony to celebrate the Queen Mother of the day. So if we have no Queen Mother, there's no Rit Dance. Um, it, it's, it's supposed to be us um, showing a show of cultural pride. But I think we're, uh, because, simply because it's open only to young maidens. When we talk of young maidens, it's somebody who's, it's a young who's never had a child. Um, once you have a child, you disqualify, you can't go to the dance and dance it. It's only open. It, it's, supposed to, it's supposed to be a matter of cultural pride. It's just that over time, um, it has been, you could say, abused. And I think to the rest of the world and people like you, it is now seen as a thing because he picks people's children there and makes them his wives. And uh, I would argue that not necessarily. And uh, let me tell you why. The reality on the ground has been with the king having come into power as an 18-year-old in 1986, um, what you saw over the next few years was, and, and this is true, you know, and I dare anyone to say I'm lying. A lot of parents seeking favor with the king, seeking better economic status, pushed their children to be seen by the king as, as prospective wives. That's a fact. Mm. Those who were lucky, those, those who were lucky to get the king's interest, what he would then do, is he would say, oh, I like Smongi, and I want to make him make him his wife. But culturally, the king only chooses his, his bride at the Rit dance. That has always been, even before him, it's not his creation. Then arrangement would be made that make sure this young lady is there, and I will point her out there 
in public as a ceremonial thing. It's not as if, in other words, it doesn't follow that if you let your daughter go to Umsham, the red dance, there's a chance that the king would take him. Not highly unlikely that's going to happen. Mm. What's most likely to happen is he will choose her there where you, being the greedy parent you are, have made arrangements with the king that this happens. But obviously to the, to the whole world, it's like the king uses Umshama as a, an abusive, um, uh, you know, to abuse and take wives. No, he was young. He was still open to take wives. And people, of course, there are those that he chose himself. I mean, I'm, it just doesn't uh, disqualify that. But all I'm saying is parents used their children for their own economic benefit by throwing them at the king. I, I, I think guess, the, 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 the issue that we started with, Peggy, we're we coming back to that issue. How does traditional institutions like the monarchy, the reed dance, survive modernity? I think, to me, it sounds like that's, that's what Swaziland, Eswatini uh, uh, um, rather, Eswatini is dealing with. And what you've just admitted right now is that there's been a, a tainting of the reed, reed dance. There's been a tainting and corrupting of the monarchy. Where does where does Eswatini go from here? That's 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 a million dollar question because um, the king has abused our culture and so have we. But you are saying that the, I think that the, the the you know the underlying question you've been asking is how do you mix the two? How do they go forward? I, it's going to be difficult for me to to answer you clearly, uh, except to say this. When I said to you, if you were to remove the king, you'd create a new problem. Let me tell you where I was coming from. Um, hierarchies and birthrights are extremely important within Swazi society. And I'm talking here about family level. If you are the eldest in the family, your word counts. It doesn't matter how less educated you are and how the next guy, how educated he is we always defer to the elder of the house. From the household, you go to the chief. You'd be surprised, I mean, Kim Swati was appointing chiefs the other day. And uh, I was surprised at how the views of Emma Swati were or are about issues to do with those traditional structures that come from inheritance. So now here's the problem. If you removed Mswati and put Trevor Nube as the president, you know what's most likely to happen? The question mm -hmm. would be, who's he? You know? <laughs> oh, uh, he's a guy who comes from Love Vumisa in the south of Swaziland. So I come from a place called Luyemo. I will ask the question, so what's that got to do with me? Why does he then come and become head of state? Why should I answer to him when I don't even care where he comes from? Whereas if you put in a successor to Mswati, the answer is, well, his royal family. Now, this thing is ingrained in us. It's all we know. Now, some people, particularly the youth, will say it's nonsense. And I will say, let it happen, and then you'll see 
how much of a problem it will create for us. Mm. Chances are, let me tell you something. Part of the part of the problem that created the, Jan, the June unrest, and here's a living example. The prime minister of the country died in December 2020 from COVID. There was an acting prime minister. The acting prime minister did not command the respect of that office. The security forces were not taking him seriously. The question is why? The answer is simple. The incumbent who had died was appointed as Bayern in front of everybody. He had greater legitimacy than this guy who suddenly found himself in office and not appointed by the king and nobody. So when he tried to handle the policy of the day, we just wouldn't listen to him as a people. We didn't take him seriously because he lacked the legitimacy that was necessary. It's very difficult to put in logical terms, but it's a site that's there. And for me, it starts at family level. If Trevor Nube is the eldest at home, he could talk nonsense, but his word is highly likely to prevail than the youngest who has got all the money and intelligence that exists, simply because he's the youngest, you know? Yeah. Um, wow. It's, it's wow. not a problem. Yeah, tell me, is, is, is polygamy so also ingrained within um, uh, Eswatini society? Polygamy, I wouldn't say ingrained, I'd say it's allowed. Polygamy is not a joke. Okay, it's not a joke. No, it's not a joke. Uh, it's allowed. Look, let's be honest, in this modern times, and I like to think of it in the old days, one woman is allowed to handle. True. Um, Two, three, four, that's a lot. And I've always held the view that because of the advent of things, uh, the changes in society, and particularly Christianity, us born later in life and those born even before us have never been taught the technique of handling multiple wives. I think there's a science to it. And we simply don't know how to handle it. Because look, and, and, and because of economic factors, if you're going to buy a car for one woman, you must buy another one of the same kind or other one. That's difficult to do. So as somebody once said to me, and, and funny, it was a diplomat from America. You know, she said to me, she made the observation that in that time in, in, in Eswatini, she realized that Polygamy is not a woman problem. It's actually a problem for men. And I said, why do you say that? He said, imagine being one person, two, three women are making demands from you and you are just one person. Each one tells you their problem and you must attend to it. That's a lot for one person to deal with. Uh, <laughs> jealousies, uh, you know. So it's, 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 it's not as big as it used to be. Uh, simply because my view is it's something we just don't know how to handle. Mm. The technique. I, I, I think, I think Beg, that right there for me is the nub of where Eswatini is. It's something big, but it's something that we don't know how to handle. Exactly. The monarchy is, a, there's a clash between the monarchy and modernity, and Eswatini is battling how to handle this. There's a that clash between 
there's a clash between the rich dance and modernity. And that conversation that you're talking about, S-Y-N-E, with the king, to say, who are we? Amaswatu, who are we? In this modern age, is a conversation that must be had, isn't it? That is why we need this uh, national dialogue, because we've reached a point where we need to have a conversation with ourselves, among ourselves. Fantastic. I hope this conversation, Beggy, starts the conversation, Eswatini, eh, 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 about what uh, Amaswati want to be, because clearly there's a, a, I sense that there's a, a clash, that a rupture is threatening the whole society, unless these issues that you and I have discussed are resolved. But you and I can't sort out uh, Eswatini over one hour. Shall we go to what we can sort out, which is the books that we read? We have a lot of viewers out there, Peggy, who love books. What books, and I know you love reading, Peggy, what books have you read that you'd want to share? It would be good if there's a, uh, a, a book by uh, Umswati uh, um, or somebody from Eswatini. What books have you read, Peggy, that you'd want to recommend well, to our loving viewers? Well, I, I actually, you know, that's, I actually don't have, uh, I was wondering about this, but I, I couldn't think clearly. Well, I've read many books, and, and unfortunately, in the last few years, I've been doing a lot of studying. I'm, I'm studying with you, Nisa, so I haven't been reading as much as I'd like to. Um, but there's a book, you know, that speaks to the values that I believe in, that I've been, I was reading recently, written by an old man. He, he died many, it was several years ago, uh, the story of his life, a man called uh, Sosthenes Mkokong. Hmm. He he is a four-tech uh, graduate. He he actually was at university with Mandela and OR. He comes from that generation. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I read that book and it touched me how he made himself a man. Hmm. You know, those things that I think we've lost as a people, as, you know, the youth. The importance of excellence, of taking what you do and being good at it. He, he was a teacher, uh, even though he, he writes a bit selfishly that uh, he, he had a master's in chemistry and maths, and, uh, which he attained in the 1940s. Um, and he says he, now, he doesn't understand why anybody can't understand maths. And given my own history of maths, I thought he, he was rather selfish. Um, but, well, what, but, what is the book what, called, Peggy? What's the book called? Uh, it's called Golobe. He was um, he he he's one of those South Africans that came to Eswatini at the introduction of the Bantu education. Okay. Uh, he was I think he was from the Pedi people. Uh, went to Fort Hare uh, and says something actually uh, which I which I found interesting about Mandela and when they were at university together. Mm. But anyway, he he's, he it's it's a book that. If you if you know the Mkokong family, I think one of them owns a mine. He's in mining in South Africa. Uh, it's the father that wrote the book. It's called Kolobe. The, the Kolobe seems to be the symbol of the people he comes from, um, um, which you know he writes about. But the thing is, what permeates through that book is excellence, being 
good. And because he was a teacher, he says, he talks about the importance of sports in grooming a leader, uh, how you groom a leader in class. Because he came to a school called Swazi National and actually had a meeting with Sopoza at the time, who said to him, that school you are going to have identified that it will uh, produce the leaders of the country after independence. Help me get mm-hmm. good men out of that. And he produced a lot. So that book for me speaks to values of importance in, you know, today we live in a world where we do things for money and mm-hmm. we don't care what the mm-hmm. world is. So I, I think it represents what matters, why we are who we are. Um, and, and another book I read, um, which I like, by, uh, it's called uh, Creating the Good Life. All right. Yes. Book, yes. I, I will give it, by the way, I'm an early fellow. I don't know if you know that. So you, so I am an early fellow. Both of us are early fellows. What a great I, institution. I know you are. <laughs> I know you are. One of the things that that book talks about is what makes us happy in life? Mm. You know? What is the definition of happiness? Mm. Uh, is it now sitting here having an interview with you? And, and it, it, it sort of comes back to the book I'm talking about by Mokong, that he, he ends his book by saying, of everything I've told you, I can say uh, without fear of contradiction that I lived a good and fulfilling life. Mm. And for me, that's what counts. It's not how much money you have in the bank. It is how much, when you look back, what you've done, uh, does it matter? Mm. And I think that is the point of happiness, where you can walk away from this and say life. And I think that's, you know, um, that's what's important, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, what a lovely place to, to, to end our conversation, Beggy. Uh, you and I go a long way. We, when we were uh, slightly younger than this, we, we've been all over the world uh, together and had good times. Uh, but you, the way, where we end, Beggy, you know, that question, have I lived a life of impact? Um, have I been of use to my society? And Beggy, you've been... Uh, um, a, uh, a pioneer. You've been a trailblazer. You have a, you've had an impact on uh, Eswatini, and uh, you know Africa needs more people like you, Beggy, who, uh, who are driven by values, uh, by principles, by ethics. So so proud of you, Beggy. Um, thank you for setting aside the time to to have this conversation. I don't take this lightly, particularly on a tough day like like today, where people are logged away. Um, and 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 trying to, to protest. So thank you so much, Peggy. Allow me, Peggy, to address me now to our viewers uh, who are all over the world who follow this show every week. Thank you so much uh, for your support. Remember that we are a weekly show. We are out on YouTube at 7 a.m. Central African time every Monday. We uh, have also created podcasts for your listening pleasure. I invite you to click on this button and subscribe like and share uh, the the quality conversations that we have. Thank you so much. We've also created um, uh, a website for you where our podcasts sit. Visit our website and click on links to our podcast for your listening pleasure. Until next time, cheers to you all.